I'm going to start this reading of Candidate Everyone from the very beginning. The reason is because it's been a few weeks since I read that one short chapter, and it'll feel like a bit of an orphan if it isn't tied into the rest. So here we go. Candidate Everyone, Chapter 1, Coffee By the third cup of coffee, I knew I had him hooked. I'd moved to D.C. three years earlier. I'd come here because I wanted to be in on the center of the action. I could have gotten along fine living out in the middle of nowhere, in the provinces, as I started to call them. I could have grown old, not mattering. Or I could make a stab at being in the place where it seemed like everything important in your life got decided. For me, the choice was obvious. But just being in the place wasn't enough. I didn't want to be a nobody whose only connection to power was that I cleaned power's offices. I wanted more. I wanted to really matter. And that, of course, wasn't easy. The obvious way to get in, to matter, was to get elected. Those were the big boys in town. But getting elected takes time, serious time. You can't generally just skip and jump into the House of Representatives, much less the Senate. You have to put your time in on the city council, state legislature, etc., etc., etc. I didn't have the patience. To be honest, I probably didn't have the charisma to pull it off, even if I had had the patience. So that was a no-go. The next option was to get on somebody's staff. Sometimes the staff matters more than the face in the front of the office. But that wasn't going to work for me either. Those folks, the ones who mattered, fell into two broad categories. The first group came from the hoity-toity Ivy League schools with all the right connections. They were operators. The second group were those interns who specialized in extracurricular skills. I would have been up for that, I think. But quite brutally, I don't have the looks to compensate for my weight. I'm the kind of woman who's most likely to reproduce thanks to the anonymous services of a sperm bank. There was another path, a classic path. Get involved in a campaign, volunteer, get close to the candidates, and then get in on some cushy job. Of course, that was really just the same as getting elected. To be really close to the candidate, you had to come up through the ranks with them. Otherwise, you were more likely as not to be tossed aside once the election was won, or most likely lost. And if you didn't pick the right candidate, you wouldn't go anywhere. And so I did the only thing that made sense to me. After I graduated college with a useless degree in theater, I imitated aspiring actresses everywhere. I said goodbye to my parents in Minneapolis, grabbed my dog, hopped into my crappy old gray Honda Civic, and just drove to D.C. I got a job as a barista. And because it didn't pay much, I lived in that Civic. Then I just kind of hoped for the best. Up until that day, it hadn't exactly been working out. It actually hadn't been working out for years. And then he came into the coffee shop. I could see right away that he was an operator. He had the eyes of a man on the make. He had what my daddy used to call a shit-eating grin on his face. And he looked like he was in a seriously good mood. But one thing he didn't look like was a socially conscious individual. And that was weird, because the coffee shop wasn't exactly normal. I mean, normal people didn't go there. We took the whole personalized, small-batch, fair-trade, farm-to-cup, yada-yada-yada thing to a crazy extreme. The founder actually sourced each bag of beans from individual family plantations, none of this industrial-scale stuff for us, and then tracked it through every stage of its life until it ended up in your cup. This stuff was crazy expensive, and in my opinion at least, not very good. But the people who came here were sending a message. They wanted other people to know they were socially aware. And we catered to that. Barely tolerable world music was piped through the speakers. We picked it because it was barely tolerable. A little sacrifice can make people feel particularly virtuous. 
The walls were paneled with rustic-looking bamboo sourced at Home Depot, and the plants seemed to hang from every available space. While the plants created a maintenance headache, our patrons could argue they'd been forced bathing with their coffee. Our customers wanted to feel good about themselves, and when they came into our shop, they did. But this guy already felt good about himself, so good in fact that he didn't notice his coffee was $12 a cup. But I knew he could afford it. His clothes were not only impeccable, they were seriously stylish. Too stylish for DC, in fact. After all, you don't want to look like an operator, even if you are. The constituents might get suspicious. When the shop first started up, the coffee wasn't $12 a cup. Nobody would pay that much. The founder got himself into serious financial trouble. He had this vision and he spent a crazy amount of money setting up his sourcing and his tracing. There was no way he could pencil out. Even if he sold a $5 coffee every 30 seconds, he wouldn't be able to pay off his investment. And then I showed up. He hired me as a barista. I think he did it because, because I was hideous and from the middle of nowhere. I fit the socially conscious image, but he got more than a barista when he took me on. I might not be book smart or beautiful, but I am incredibly good at getting things done. And I knew as soon as I realized what troubles he was having, just what he needed to do. That day when that stylishly dressed customer came in, I thought about asking him which family coffee plantation he wanted his brew from, but that might have killed his buzz. So instead, I just chose for him, and then I made his cup, delivered it to him, and pointed out the little barcode I'd just printed on it. What's that? he asked perhaps more open than he'd been on a normal day. Just scan it, watch, and let me know what you think. And so he did. He took the coffee to a table, scanned the little barcode, and started watching. I actually saw him silently mouth a massive holy shit as the video unfolded on his phone. It was an even better reaction than I was hoping for. You see, back when the founder of that little coffee shop was struggling, I knew he needed something really unique to show what his product was about. And so I delivered it. It took a little work to convince him to pour more money into the venture, but he did. He paid for some camera equipment, he paid for a bunch of travel, and he sent me to all of his little family coffee plantations. While there, I interviewed the family farmers. I talked to them about why they did what they did, from planting and picking to drying. I talked to them about why they were proud of the product they delivered. I talked to them about their heritage. One thing about me, I might not be charismatic or beautiful, but people love to talk to me. And then I flew to the millers who haul and polish and sort the beans, and I did the same thing, and then I visited the exporters who arranged the shipments of beans to our little store, and then I spoke to the roasters, and finally I interviewed all of our baristas. Afterwards, I put it all together, uniquely for each cup. When a barista prepared your cup, a computer would assemble its history and then print the appropriate barcode on the side of it. When you scanned the barcode, you'd watch the story of your coffee. You'd meet the people involved every step of the way, even your barista and you'd know that your coffee was more than just an average cup of joe. That day, my stylish customer watched the video, and then he bought a second cup of coffee and watched another video, and then I saw him decide to buy a third, and I knew right then that whatever he was up to, I'd be in on it. He wouldn't be able to resist. When he came up to the counter, he asked the question I was waiting for. Who made these? I just smiled, raised my hand, and said, me. No, no, he said. Not the coffee, the videos. Me, I repeated. He looked at me, not quite understanding, and then it dawned on him that I meant exactly what I was saying. Slowly, deliberately, he laid $12 on the counter, looked me in the eye and said, How'd you like a job? Those five words changed my life forever. 
Actually, those five words changed your life, too. Chapter 2. The Show I knew I wanted to work for him, whatever the job was. But I couldn't make it that easy. What's the job? I asked. Where'd you go to film school? He said, as if he hadn't heard me. I didn't, I answered. He looked surprised. But the videos! I figured out what this cafe needed, and I taught myself, I said. He just looked at me, and then a moment later, I watched him amid a second. Holy sh... I just waited. His grin broke for a moment. That was when he asked, with a tinge of actual desperation, So you just figure stuff out and get it done? Yeah, I said. And then he smiled, not the shitting grin I'm good type of smile, but the fine lordy lordy just save my bacon type of smile. What? I asked. Well, he said, I don't just figure stuff out and get it done. I've got a very limited skill set. I'm kind of a sell-your-mama-an-ugly-baby kind of guy. No offense intended. None taken. Yeah, well, a few months ago, I had a really good idea. It doesn't happen much, but this one was a doozy, so I had to go with it. And I did, and I sold it in a way. But I'm more than a little worried that I'm not going to be able to ride this particular horse. What was your idea? Well, I set up two meetings today. One was with Senator William Kyle. The politician who's considering running for president on the Democratic ticket? The one. And the other was with Governor Jennifer Blumen, who happens to be in town. The front runner on the Republican ticket? He nodded. And they bought what you were selling? Oh, yes. And it wasn't ugly babies? Nope. So what was it? I asked. An update, the man answered. I just waited. He seemed reluctant to spill the beans. Do you watch the debates, he said. No, I answered. But you care about politics. I want to be important. That's why I'm in D.C. What's wrong with the debates? It's just a few people arguing, trying to score memorable points for their partisans. Two minutes and some web browsing can tell you all you need to know. Good, good, said the man. In fact, ratings for the debates have been declining with every election. If they aren't, they should be. So I had an idea for something new. Instead of morbid old debates, which really don't tell you anything about how candidates would do their jobs in the real world, I created something new. Which is, I asked, my patience beginning to run a little thin. A series of challenges, said the man. The candidates would compete in realistic situations. The public would judge their responses to complex problems. Then they'd vote in rounds. Instead of a boring old debate, we'd have something more fitting for today's world. And it would all be broadcast on the web. A reality show, I said. He winced, but it wasn't for real. I try to avoid that word, but yeah, today's candidates are reality show candidates. We should put them through their proper paces. Cool, I said. I was genuinely impressed. And you sold this to Kyle and Blumen? I did, he said, his grin returning. They agreed, in writing, to participate in the contest. Wow. Yeah, but I'm afraid I can't deliver. Why not? Well, I told them all about my production company, but there's nothing really there. I do have entertainment industry relationships, but they'll just take the whole idea from me. I can't keep control of it. And the financial backers? I could get them, but it'd be the same story. I'm not the kind of person who can manage it all. So you need a manager? Yeah. A barista, I asked, incredulous. Yeah, I think so. What makes you think I'm qualified? The videos are awesome. That's it, I asked. That and your general air of confidence. And why wouldn't I just take the idea from you, like your entertainment friends? The man snorted. Look at you, he said. You're smart, capable, driven, but you're a barista. Why? Because you can't sell yourself. So you need me. I can sell anything. And I need you, because I can't deliver. I looked him over. The man was a prick, but this was D.C. that was expected. And he wasn't wrong. Producer, I said, 
What? He asked. I get to be called producer, and I get 20% of the company, and I can manage whatever the heck I feel like. He thought for just a second. Then he grinned and extended his hand. I'm Freddie Samuels, and you've got a deal. I took Freddie's hand. I'm Amber Martin, and I'm in. Chapter 3. The Setup The most important thing is for people to think you respect them. It doesn't actually have to be true to be effective. Sometimes, though, you really do respect people, and those people can come from the most unexpected places. To give one life-changing example, you might just find that kind of person is a barista at an incredibly snobby coffee shop. Of course, I knew Amber was different from the moment I walked in. Not different in a good way, of course. She just didn't belong in that coffee shop, and I'm an expert on where people belong. The kind of person who works there would have been vegan thin and would have had a fair number of piercings, a couple of tattoos, long hair, and dare I say it, a lack of personal hygiene. One thing Amber wasn't was vegan thin. She was five foot nothing and 250 pounds. She could have eaten a vegan for breakfast and nobody would have noticed. Her jowls had jowls. She had no piercings and no tattoos. Her hair was thinning so much it seemed to have been falling out. She wasn't a fit in the personal hygiene department either. But in this case, the less said the better. I wouldn't have been surprised to see her selling deep-fried Snickers wrapped in chicken at a state fair. Except, of course, I'd never be at a state fair, unless it was to show respect to the kind of people who would be. I could be down home if the circumstances call for it. People and places fit together. Amber and that coffee shop didn't. It so happened, at that exact moment in time, I didn't particularly care. i just had the most successful day of my life. I'd managed in one day to finagle meetings with two of the most prominent politicians in D.C., and I'd managed to sell them both. Sometimes a network can yield incredible benefits. As I said, the important thing is for people to think you respect them. In either case, I'd had such an incredible day that I didn't mind buying a $12 coffee that tasted like native people and passed it personally because they'd run out of civet cats. I did notice the videos, though. After talking her up and gently putting myself down, I managed to hire Amber on the spot. In reality, we became partners. I respected her abilities, she respected mine, and we worked extremely well together. Our cadence was simple. I had the network and the face, and she got the work done behind the scenes. And it all went very, very well. We went from program playing in my dining room to pitching investors in glass and steel skyscrapers. Well, she prepared the material and I went to the pitches. We went from planning a purely online format to network television. Before long, she'd actually moved out of that disgusting car of hers and she began to smell like something that hadn't recently died. That also helped with business. And it was going to be an incredible business. To make it that way, we needed to dial things in perfectly. We needed a show people actually wanted to watch, but also a show they felt a little guilty actually turning on. Those pleasures are often the most undeniable. In order to do this, we packaged the whole thing up as the next step in the grand American democratic experiment. We told the public our format would truly expose the candidates. Instead of judging them by sound bites and snappy comebacks, we'd actually have some idea about how they perform under pressure. It was all bullshit, of course, but everybody knew that. They wouldn't have felt guilty if they didn't. When we got brave enough, we even took it up a notch. I claimed with a perfectly straight face that our show would change the role of money in politics. Even as we planned a role in the dough, we declared that we'd take the money out of politics. After all, everybody who made it to the show would have an equal chance. No amount of ad buying would be able to have more impact than their performance on our stage. The little guy would have as big a chance as the corporate or union-backed big guns. This was a little closer to the truth, but not much. But people believe what they want to. The most important thing, of course, was to make them want to believe, which is why I was the host. I would respect them, or at least appear to, and they'd buy whatever story I was selling. They'd think I had their interests at heart. So when I said we'd take the money out of politics, they didn't really notice the obscene margins we were going to be making selling phenomenally expensive ads to politicians during the breaks. 
The show itself had to harness voters' passion. This started with selecting the candidates. We didn't have some fancy polling method. Instead, we went with an online poll. Voters could vote once a day for whomever they wanted. If they really liked somebody, they could vote for them day after day. If they were more sophisticated than the average bear, their dead relatives from Chicago could join in. The idea was simple. We wanted committed, crazy candidate support. With that would come buzz, conversation, ratings, and money. Once the candidates were selected, we couldn't run the actual voting. It just wasn't practical. We did the next best thing instead. We scheduled the show around the primaries with the final two candidates facing off just before the general election. It was simpler all around, and we could still build up the tension we wanted. We scheduled an episode to land before each major batch of primaries, and then the states ended up helping out from their end. Many of them shifted their primaries to match our timing. Before long, we were winding down to the final week before the primaries. The field of 16 was close to being announced. Everything was ready to go. The candidates were even sparring over the show itself. Before a single episode had been aired, they were complaining about bias and exclusion. The public was trying to work out my political views. Hint, I don't have any. Everybody was playing every angle they could, and no show in history had generated more buzz than ours. It was perfect. Then two prominent candidates withdrew. They made big public announcements declaring the whole thing not presidential. They attacked everything we were doing. And that was not perfect. Amber actually considered just picking number 17 and number 18 to join the field, but let me ask you, how much do you actually know about the 17th and 18th most popular presidential candidates? Not much, right? I knew we needed another solution to the problem. I just didn't know what it was. I still hadn't figured out what that replacement would be when I was invited to an interview on national TV. Any publicity is good publicity, so I accepted once I was on the show, the host put two questions to me. First, what do you think about the most prominent candidates backing out? That was an easy question to answer. I just had to throw aspersions on some unknown them. So I answered, they're in the pockets of their big money donors trying to give them one last chance to decide our elections. It was awesome, populist pap. But then she, the host, asked the big question, what are you going to do about it? I didn't have an answer. Instead, I just announced that our staff had identified two candidates of our own, dark horse candidates, candidates of the people. We'd share them with the world the night of the show itself. I had no idea who those candidates were, of course, but social media went nuts with speculation. As I was driven back to the office, I imagined that all five feet and 250 pounds of amber were scrambling through lists of no-name mayors and congressmen trying to find a match. It was an entertaining thought, but not far from the reality. When I finally got there, I opened the door and Amber was standing there. She basically shouted at me, Who in the hell do you have in mind? I just smiled and said, Amber, remember, it's all about the ratings. She knew exactly what I meant, more than I did, in fact. Amber called up an agent for the most popular reality TV show there was, a woman famous for her unusual fashion sense and outlandish ideas. She accepted our deal. Amber followed up with another stroke of genius. She mapped the birthplaces of the other 15 candidates, and then she picked the geographic point on the continental United States that had the greatest average distance from all of them. We got a phone number, made a call, and offered the woman who answered the 16th spot. It was incredibly effective. We introduced the candidates one by one. I was a charming and welcoming and positive host. Most of all, I was respectful. We're almost entirely nonpartisan. You've got to treat the product well, right? Of course, in less obvious ways, I was just a bit more supportive of the candidate I wanted to win. Even if people had realized what I was doing, they wouldn't have known why. I wasn't actually a supporter of the man. Of course, we held back our mystery candidates until the very end. The anticipation was incredible. What had been a social media phenomenon became a hurricane. The reality show star had a short introduction. I explained that we chose her simply because of her remarkable popularity. Twitter exploded in speculation, and then she delivered her statement. Two minutes of pure political inanity. 
I just let her say whatever she wanted. I encouraged her to say whatever she wanted. It was nuts. It was silly. But it made the real sound off. The mainstream candidates looked great. It gave them respect, and folks loved it. Nobody knew who the last candidate would be. Nobody but us. I rolled it out slowly. We, really Amber, had made a splashy segment about how we found the last candidates, maps and lines and everything, the precise coordinate methodology necessary to find the perfect 16th candidates. We wanted to represent the unrepresented. We wanted to give those without a voice a real voice. After a proper build-up, Charlotte Morris, a 63-year-old mother of three, was introduced. We coached her as much as you can in a week and helped her craft her statement. She was cogent, clear, and a full-on nutcase conspiracy theory right-winger. She did not display her respect of people across the political spectrum. Because of that, she was an instant and infamous celebrity. The rest of the campaign went beautifully. I wouldn't say it to her, of course, but Amber was perfect. Not only was she talented and gifted, which I would tell her, her incredible weight and sheer ugliness made her the perfect partner. She wasn't a threat to me. She couldn't replace me as host, obviously. And nobody was going to honeypot her into betraying me. There are limits to what people will do. We had trust and we had mutual interest. She was the perfect tool and I was the perfect opportunity. The campaign itself went wonderfully. The two candidates who bowed out never stood a chance. The housewife offended 80% of the country, collected a few million votes, and locked in a lifetime of talk show income. The reality star made it into the second round. The world was abuzz with our project, and in the end, a candidate hated by 50% of the population won the whole thing. We called the show Choose Your Leader. It suggested that America would be choosing the next president. It suggested respect. But in the end, the man I wanted won. He won precisely because I knew he'd alienate half of America. I don't really respect the people. But if you want something from them, you have to make them think you're the only one who does.